Lord Jesus, this day we remember your triumph over sin and death. We remember the cost. We recall, Lord, that people expected things from you that weren't realistic. But you did not abandon them because they didn't understand. You went with them to the depths of sorrow to take away the sin of the world. We remember that we are still people who have unrealistic expectations. We are still people who find ourselves looking for a savior that meets our felt needs, that joins us where we will meet him, that is supposed to do what we think is best. We're all guilty of this, Lord, and we repent. We ask, Lord, for our repentance to be turned into new life, a new vision, a new paradigm, Lord, that involves seeking your will, not our own. Let your will be done, not ours. Lord, you have taken our cup of sorrows upon yourself so that we can give freely of our lives to your service, knowing that our burdens are temporary and are not uncommon to humanity. We understand, Lord, that much wrong is done in the name of our Lord Jesus, but not in the spirit that he gives us. And so we ask, Lord, for our heart's desires to be changed by your Holy Spirit. We ask that we become more like you every day, first in our thoughts, in our hearts. Lord Jesus, today we come remembering our brothers and sisters and their many needs and ask simply that your will be done. That as we move through life's many ups and downs and through the process of growing older and eventually finishing our days on earth and joining you in paradise, that all of us would go with hope and joy into paradise, even as that thief on the cross who put his trust in Jesus did. Lord, we look forward to celebrating your resurrection and in effect celebrating our own resurrection that is to come our new life and eternal physical presence promised to us by your word. We look forward, Lord, to a day when the only prayers we have to offer are prayers of praise, waving our palms and saying in the present tense, our Messiah has come, we have been saved. And so we finally pray, Lord, the words our Messiah and Savior have taught us as we say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. We're going to read two passages today from Scripture, not all at the same time. So if you'll begin by turning in your Bibles to John chapter 12, we're going to read John 12 first, starting at verse 12. Talk about that for a moment and then move on to a reading from the Gospel of Mark. So please find in your pew Bibles on page 1068, John 12. We'll read verses 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I went on further than I said I would, didn't I? Nope, I stopped right there. Well, then, praise God for his word. Let's see, Larry, I think we were talking a little while ago about flaws and human frailty starting right there in the pulpit, huh? So I, uh, I would like to draw your attention to a couple of things about this, this so-called triumphal entry. Um, I gauged that somewhat incredulously, only because I think that the triumph was not really understood. And the real victory was not so much what people celebrate even today as it was something far deeper. And only Jesus really understood. And John reminds us of that because he said none of this really made sense to them until after Jesus was glorified. Meaning after his fulfillment of all those things and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then they began to understand John's approach to the triumphal entry is more subdued, really, than than the other gospel accounts. This is one of the stories that's recorded in all four of the gospels, and that's significant in that it means each in their telling felt that this was worth mentioning. Um, Just as an aside, sometimes people will say, you know, why, why are there four versions of the same story? Well, If you read the Gospels carefully in your personal study, you'll begin to realize that each of the Gospel writers has a different theme that they're trying to draw out about Jesus. John is focused on Jesus' divinity, 
more than anything else. And Mark tends to focus on Jesus' humanity more than anything else. And that's why we have such a complete picture because four principal witnesses record from four different perspectives, essentially the same life and the same witness. So anyway, John is giving us a more subdued version of this event because he's looking at it from a spiritual perspective. He's looking at it as Jesus is the God divine in the flesh and coming into town to do something way more significant than it would appear to be from a strictly human perspective. The crowds, as John indicates, seem to have gathered really in Bethany after the witness of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. And so they're traveling with Jesus because, well, I don't know, if you'd witnessed one person doing something like that, especially just recently, you might be sticking close to this person. If you were a messianic person, that is someone who was looking for the coming of the Messiah and the events that that would trigger in a sort of end time sense, you'd want to stick close to him. So these people were, they were following Jesus wherever he went after they witnessed this, this uh, raising of the dead in Bethany. Uh, Jesus had done this before, but it happened in Galilee primarily. And uh, most of his miracles, as they're recorded in scripture, happened around Galilee. And I don't know, that's, that's kind of like saying, you know, if, if Chicago is, is Jerusalem, that's sort of like saying he performed most of his miracles around Jasper, and then he went to Chicago, and he performed one in Hammond, Indiana. That, I mean, if, that, if you get my meaning, because Bethany's right outside of Jerusalem. And uh, this, was, this was bringing it close to the big city now. And the people were pretty astonished. Some of them were seeing something they'd never imagined seeing. And the Galileans were around too because it was Passover after all. And this was one of those festivals that happened annually that brought everybody together. So he had quite an entourage of people who were already very convinced that he was the Messiah. And when he enters into the city, the... Uh, the Pharisees are grumbling because they feel like the battle's already lost. They're grumbling because in just, this is why I thought I messed up on the reading, because if you read just a little bit further, you find that these Greeks had sought him out and they were people who had come from a far country for the Passover and then decided they needed to spend some time talking to this fella. And so the Pharisees were grumbling because the world was coming to him even. So they, they were quite troubled and felt that they had already lost their battle with Jesus and that this was the victory that they feared most that would displace them and their authority and their position. So that's just kind of give you a perspective on what's going on. There's, there's, a, there's a real, throughout the whole week of Passover, especially this one where Jesus's crucifixion will occur, there is just Right, they're right on the edge of chaos and frenzy. The whole community is, is like a, a, a tinderbox. It's just ready to burst into flames at any moment. It's, it's, a very, it's a very highly energized time in the city anyway. And now there is a significant belief that the Messiah is in their presence. Now the book of Daniel sets the stage for this and many scholars are convinced that Daniel chapter nine in particular, verse 24 is describing what Jesus does that day. And it is reasonable to assume that this 
quote from Daniel probably gets closer to the real purpose for what Jesus was doing that day when Daniel says, quoting the angel Gabriel who was casting this vision to him, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. So as I say, many prophecy scholars really think that this is Daniel quoting the, game, the angel Gabriel, describing what Jesus is doing that day. And this is where it becomes really important to recognize, again, the words of John the Baptist, who declared at the beginning of his ministry, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus has purposefully chosen a particular entryway into the city, the one that makes him and his entourage, in particular his donkey ride, pass right before the temple where the sacrificial lambs are usually driven in in order at uh, Passover to atone for the sins of the people. And so in Jesus's mind, it seems likely that he was presenting himself as a sacrifice in the same spirit that those lambs were presented at the temple to atone for the sins of the people. This is why I say victory well, yes and no. To the people, even to the Pharisees, this doesn't, this doesn't seem like the victory if it is about him sacrificing himself. And what they were expecting, even the Pharisees, was for him to take his entourage, riding on a colt, meaning like a king, and marching right up to the Antonia Fortress where the Roman procurator resided where the Jerusalem contingent or cohort was. Uh, they saw him perhaps riding right up to the house of the high priest Caiaphas and taking over and getting rid of those dreaded Pharisees and Sadducees, oh, especially the Sadducees. They really hated the Sadducees because they were a religious sect in name only. They were mainly uh, politically motivated religious people who were really right hand to the Roman government in so many respects. Who else would permit the Romans to build a tower that is overseeing into the Temple Mount? Such an abomination would never have been tolerated, but for political reasons. What's going on, you might be asking, and why all this groundwork? Well, because I want you to understand Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus has prepared himself to be the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. 1 Peter 1 says, You were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a spotless, unblemished lamb. Isaiah 53, which is one of those beautiful passages we quote throughout the year, prophesies that though he was harshly treated, he submitted and opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And after his crucifixion, Jesus would have been killed by the breaking of his legs had they not already determined that he was dead by putting a spear in his side. Why is that significant? Because the bones of the sacrificial lamb were never broken. It was part of the Mosaic law. It goes all the way back to the first Passover when this was prescribed by God through Moses to the people. 
the Apostle Paul says, our Paschal Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. He's referring to Jesus as the Paschal Lamb. Paschal is a Latinized word. It just means the sacrificial lamb, the one that takes away the sin of the world, that provides everlasting righteousness. And so Jesus has not come to triumph over the world's power, not this time. This time he has come to the city to triumph over sin and death, to take upon himself your sin and mine and all the sin that is born out of our rejection of God from the moment we enter this earth and then heightened throughout the times of our consciousness as we grow more and more opposed to God by our nature and by our habit. Jesus takes away the sin of the world and this is why on that day, which may or may not have been a Sunday, he presented himself at Passover time as a sacrifice. Scripture tells us that on the day he was crucified, even the time that he was crucified, sacrificial lambs were being offered for the Passover in the temple, meaning that at the same time his blood was being shed for the final atonement of all sin and for the purpose of eternal righteousness, the sacrificial lambs for the Passover were also being offered. Now, let's turn again to Scripture, now reading from the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is a reading from chapter 14. In your pew Bible, you will find that on page 1012, 10, 12. We're going to read Mark 14, starting at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all these things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And again, it's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, we're pretty familiar with that story, I guess, if we've been in church on Easter Sunday and, and throughout the holy weeks of the past and Palm Sundays and Passion Sundays. And perhaps we know the story pretty well as we just heard it but I'd like to take you a little deeper for just a moment because there are things that happen in that story that need explaining. Do you hear in the story a couple of key points? He is in an anguish that is indescribable really and the only thing we know for sure is, is that he is suffering in a way we've never witnessed 
in the gospel accounts up to this point. At this moment, Jesus is suffering such great emotional trauma that we're told in another gospel that his blood was like, or sweat was like blood. Physicians can tell you and scientists can tell you what that's about, but it basically is a expression of extreme emotional trauma. It's a very rare occurrence. What would make our Lord Jesus so traumatized in the garden that he would be sweating blood? What would make our Lord Jesus, who has always been in the company of the Father and the Spirit and always been for all beyond our eternal understanding, united with Father and Spirit so that there is a holy communion of the Trinity, and yet at this hour he longs for his earthly friends. At this hour he's pleading that his friends would just stay awake just stay awake and walk with him as he cries and in pain and sorrow suffers this great emotional trauma. What's going on there? And what about this cup that he asks to have taken away from him? What does this mean? Well, I'll start with that cup. In the Kidron Valley, right across from the gate where Jesus entered in this triumphal entry, or at least as tradition have it, has it, there is a little church called the Dominus Flevit Church. Dominus Flevit is a Latin phrase that just means the Lord wept. And it is shaped like a tear. It's a chapel shaped like a tear. And at each of the four corners of the building, there are images carved in stone of something called a tear cup. And there's a clue there that the architect has left with us about what this cup probably is. And it teaches us something significant about the, te the, the people of Jesus's earthly service. In other words, it's a sign of his Jewishness. And what we see then is that he's referring to a cup of sorrows. It's a figurative statement, sort of, but not totally. People often refer to their cups of sorrows and their cups of joys in the Old Testament especially, and in the Jewish culture even today. And this is because their tears were considered sacred. They were considered to have a life of their own. And in Jewish tradition, especially the ancient Jewish tradition, many uh, ethereal things have real life. The word of God has life. When you start writing God's word down, you've created sort of a living thing, they feel. And therefore, uh, that's why they honor the scripture scrolls the way they do and protect them from harm. And this is why it was such a, a blatant and terrible pain and, and wound and, and death to the Jews, saying during the Nazi Holocaust, to have their scrolls burned because they felt that they were living things. And in the same way, they felt that the tears were an expression of the life within. And as it turns out, science has proven that when you look at tears of joy under the microscope and tears of sorrow under the microscope, they look different. There's been some different theories about them. Some even posit that tears of sorrow are somewhat toxic. Nevertheless, it's the body's expression of removing something just in the same way that your sweat removes toxins and other functions of the body remove toxins from the body so do tears and so the jewish tradition then that goes way back 
in ancient tradition was to make these frail little cups. They were really kind of uh, bottles, you might say, with, with a, a larger bottom and a neck and then a wide opening at the top, sort of like a funnel. And they were probably about half the size of your eyeball. And the, and the people would have these around and they would collect their tears in these tear cups especially at a wedding where there were tears of joy or at a funeral where there were tears of sorrow. And then they would cap them with wax and they'd put them up on the mantle or the shelf or something. And it was like our photo albums, but they didn't have photo albums. So what did they do to recall special occasions? They could look to a certain tear cup and remember the day. They filled it with their tears of sorrow or their tears of joy. This was very common practice. You can go to museums in Israel and see these all over the place in various shapes and sizes. And if you travel to the Holy Land, you can go to the gift shops and buy reproductions of them. It's that much of a part of the culture. And yet, to us Westerners, something we've never really heard about. And so I wanted to share that with you because when Jesus asks the Lord to take these, these sorrows away from him, this cup of sorrows, it is not unlike that story about that woman who washed his feet with her tears. Do you remember that story? Jesus was in the house of a certain Pharisee who didn't even bother to wash his feet, which was a common custom in those days. When you receive guests, no matter who the guests are, you washed their feet or had a servant wash their feet. You at least provided them with a jug of water and a basin so that they could wash their own feet. Then when this woman, a sinner, came and poured out her cup of sorrows on Jesus' feet, the picture that is given in Scripture indicates that she was probably standing behind him since he was reclining at table, and perhaps it was the tears from her eyes pouring down and dripping on his feet, but more likely she had brought her sorrows to him. And sorrows so often are associated with our sin, aren't they? We, we come to one who seems to be able to forgive our sins and to show us a new life and a new regenerative existence in the spirit. We come to someone like that with our sin, don't we? And so she takes her cup of sorrows, she unplugs it or breaks the neck and pours it over his feet and washes his feet. And Jesus says to the Pharisee, who is criticizing this sinner for even being in, his, in their presence, he says to the Pharisee, you know what, you didn't even wash my feet, and yet she has poured out her sorrows on me. In other words, she gets it. In other words, she gets that he is the one who takes upon himself our sorrows, our griefs, which are without doubt always ultimately because of sin. If not ours, then the sin of others, right? And so grief and sorrow, all of those cups of sorrow that have been saved by Jews for generations, even our cups of sorrows that are more figurative than literal, Jesus has taken upon himself. And so when he says to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, take this cup away from me. It means that he's never in his existence up to that moment borne upon himself that kind of sorrow. Grief because of sin. He's never borne upon himself that kind of bitterness that is the cup of sorrows that is caused by sin. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. 
And he takes the cup of sorrows, literally all of the tears of sorrow of all humanity upon himself. And, and then he cries to his friends, where are you? I need you. Later, Jesus will say from the cross, Father, Father, why have you abandoned me? Do you see that our sin separates us from God so that God can't be in our presence? Go back to Adam and Eve. Remember that once they had sinned, God could no longer be with them and they with him in his presence. They were separated now because of sin from God. Now Jesus, taking upon himself our sin, is separated from God the Father, the Spirit, in a way that he cannot comprehend. It is impossible for us to imagine. But we know that the trauma was so severe that Jesus bled in his sweat. We have a hint then that the beginning of our redemption is in that garden. That this spiritual battle for the destruction of sin and death and the salvation of all of God's people begins in that garden and ends in the tomb. And Jesus is alone. So alone that he craves the company of his earthly friends. And what has made him so alone? My sin and yours. Now, a few weeks ago, you'll remember that I talked about that Charles Dickens novel, Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities, in which Charles Darnay is saved by Sidney Carton, who was motivated to do a far, far better thing than he had ever done before. And so he arranges a series of events that put him in Darnay's place at the guillotine. Do you ever wonder what it would have been like to be Darnay and his family and find out later what had been done for you? To find out that someone had taken your place in the execution that you had been scheduled for? How would you respond to that? How would you carry on after hearing that? What would the generations of your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren do to celebrate the sacrifice of Sidney Carton? How would you recall that this whole legacy hung on the decision of one person to lay down his life for many, really? Would you ever remember or cease to remember that? I mean, would you ever get to the point where nobody ever talked about it anymore? I wonder. Now consider during this Holy Week, as you reflect on Jesus' passion and his sacrifice, everything that he has suffered for you and for me, and ask yourself, how have I celebrated this? How have my generations remembered that we owe all that we have and more than we really can comprehend to this work of mercy and grace that Jesus took upon himself, bearing our sin, our cup of sorrows, so that we might have joy and eternal atonement, that's at one meant, with God the Father. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, we hardly know what to say when we're put with this challenge. We hardly know how to respond, but you have given us a means of response that's really straightforward. We should say thank you. We should say, I'm sorry, Lord, that I have sinned and caused the need for this sacrifice. I'm sorry, Lord, that I haven't taken you more seriously and celebrated you more earnestly. We shall say, we love you, Lord, and we'll dedicate our lives to singing your praise and serving you. It's the least we can do, Lord, and to celebrate the generations who will enjoy eternal life and salvation because of you. Thank you, Lord. We love you, too. Amen.